You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected with our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge and our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message. We would love to hear from you. The question from the passage, which you ha- if you have a Bible, you can take it out now from 1 Peter chapter 2. That's where we're going to be, 1 Peter chapter 2. You can look at it on your phone. If you have a, your book, Bible with you, you can do that. 1 Peter chapter 2, near the end of the Bible. The question that we are faced is, what am I building, or what kind of life is all of this for? You know, when, in the context of family, in the context of career, in the context of church, what are we actually supposed to be building? I think that's a question that many of us ask ourselves. What am I actually, like I go to work every day, I come home and make dinner, whatever it is that you do in your life, like what is all this for? What am I actually building here? Or even as a church, as we sing and as we take communion, as we meet in Bible studies, as, as we seek to share the gospel in our community, what, what, is, what are we actually trying to build here? So I consulted what is the modern bastion of wisdom and influence in our day. What is my life, like what am I actually building? I consulted the modern bastion of wisdom called BuzzFeed. And I took one of those BuzzFeed quizzes. You know what I'm talking about, right? Took one of those. I googled, what am I building in my life? And it led me to a BuzzFeed article, not even an article, if you can call BuzzFeed journalism. but it was, a, it, was, it was one of those things where you answer, you know, what kind of house would you live in? There's six questions. There's six, six pictures. Which house would you choose? And then there's which car would you choose? And then, you know, who would be your bestie? Of course, I chose Denzel Washington. That was, that was natural for me. My best friend, that Denzel Washington was probably the best answer I could possibly give. Actually, now that I'm talking, it kind of reminds me of, do you remember as kids, we used to play this game called M.A.S.H.? Do you remember M.A.S.H.? <laughs> what did Matt? There's mansion, apartment, shack, house. And then, like, who are you going to marry? How many kids? All the, you got, right? When you're bored in church, this is what you did. You played MASH. There's no in between either. <laughs> the kind of the place where you dwell, it's like, not a, are you going to live in a two bedroom or three bedroom house? No. Mansion or shack. Right? There's, there's no in between here. <laughs> By the way, after that BuzzFeed thing, they told me I should be a creator. I feel like all the answers were vague enough that they didn't help in any sort of way. I have no idea what that is supposed to mean, a creator. That could mean literally anything. But the question is, what am I building in the direction of my life and, you know, in the things that I'm doing day by day, week by week, and what we're building as Restoration Church? What do I want this life to look like? Sometimes I feel like it could be like you have this home project that you're doing and you start it like Nikki and I. And two years later, your kitchen project is, is, still, is still going on, right? You're just working on things. Every day, so you have no idea where you're going. Now, the Bible doesn't have a quiz like in BuzzFeed that you can take. Say, this is what your life, this is what you should do. This is what you should build. But we are going to get a picture of what God has called us to build and what we build upon. And so, 1 Peter chapter 2, if you go with me to verse 4, that's where I'm going to start reading, down to verse 10. 
Follow along as I read this. Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And another quote, he's basically quoting the, his, this whole passage is quotes from the Old Testament. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Question mark. I'll answer that in a second. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God, right now I ask that the Spirit would come into this room, come into our hearts, that he would do two things. He would give us a a greater view of Jesus, that we would be filled with worship out of the grace and love that we have received from him, that we would respond in worship. As it says in the passage, that we would respond to what we're called to do to proclaim the excellencies of God. Secondly, that we would be convicted, that we'd get a clearer view, not just of Jesus, but of ourselves. What is it, Lord, that I need to change in my life? Maybe it's an attitude, maybe it's a perspective. Maybe it's an actual practical thing in my life that I need to do differently. Show us what that is, Lord. We pray for all these things in your name. Amen. First Peter, uh, as we've been going through for the last few weeks, we've titled this series, My Name is Exile. Because this man, Peter, who writes this book, he writes to... Christians who are literally living in, he describes them in exile. It's, it's almost like they're away from their home. They're not embraced in the prevailing culture or the prevailing people around, and they're treated as outsiders. That this is not really their home. They're not really welcome. And so he writes to them as exiles, and this Peter was a man who was, if you know the background of Peter, he's a man who was, whose life was completely changed by Jesus. He started out as, as almost an outsider himself. He didn't understand the religious rules. He, he comes off as kind of a, a clumsy guy. Like he can't get anything right. He always says the wrong thing or speaks too quickly. That was Peter. And his life was so changed to the point where Jesus at one point asked him, Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus actually calls him something else. He says, your name is Rock. It's interesting though, in this passage, this is the same Peter whose life was completely changed, who was given the name Rock. Now Aaron if you were given the name Rock, I'd use it, right? You know? I'd use it. My name's The Rock. Not Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> Me, from Jesus himself. 
He actually flips it in our passage, and who does he call the stone or the rock? Jesus. He says Jesus is actually the living stone. The context of that passage, if I read that again in verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. The context of this whole passage is he's calling Jesus this living stone. It seems kind of random. But the context is found in Isaiah 28. And most of this passage is just direct quotes or, or, or a, almost a commentary on what's going on in the Old Testament. I'm not going to make you go to Isaiah 28, but the context of Isaiah 28 was that the people of God in the city of Jerusalem, as it says in this passage, behold, I'm laying in Zion. You could also say that's Jerusalem as well. A stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The context is in Jerusalem, where the people of God existed, there was a false sense of security. They actually said, we're going to make deals with death itself. We're going to make deals with other nations. We're going to gather a bigger army. We're going to build our walls bigger to protect against incoming threats that may come against us. There was this false sense of security against opposing threats. And God speaks to his people and says in, verse, in Isaiah 28, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion. Not something else. A stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Now Peter takes that passage and ultimately applies that to Jesus himself. It is he who is this cornerstone that was talking about all these hundreds of years ago. He is the cornerstone who was chosen and precious by God. As it says, the stone the builders rejected, his own people rejected, has now become the cornerstone. Now that picture of the cornerstone, you've got you to bear with me here, because there's something I'm going to fly through. Sorry, Peter. The part that, he's gone. I have no idea where Peter is. He's vanished. Oh, he's over there. So, oh, there he is. There he is. The part Peter wanted to bring up, I'm just going to fly through some things. Because this whole image of Jesus as the stone actually applies in a number of different ways. And you talk about mixing metaphors. He uses the same metaphor to apply about three or four different, in different areas. There's two things, though, I really want to focus on. Jesus as the cornerstone, cornerstone begs us to ask the question or to consider, what is the foundation of my life? And what is the value of my life? What is the foundation and what is the value of my life? And as you consider what am I called to build, those two questions, those are two crucial questions when you're asking, what am I actually called to build in this life? Or what is the foundation? And what is the value that I think that, that, that this life offers? Because the picture of a cornerstone in ancient times I don't know if they still do this. Danny, you might know more than me. They still don't lay a cornerstone, do they? Do they lay a cornerstone anymore? Oh, okay, for time capsule's sake. Nice. At least in ancient days, what would happen is they would lay this cornerstone. It would be the first stone that was laid. And that cornerstone had to be completely square and true and it had to line up exactly where you wanted to build this building because, here's the point, everything else in that building was laid upon that cornerstone. So the line that the cornerstone took, guess what? That's, going to be, that, that's how the rest of the building is going to go. 
So basically it's saying when it says the, the, the cornerstone had to be square and true because the rest of the building was determined by that cornerstone. And another way I could say this, the integrity of the entire structure, if you can picture Tapestry Hall, the integrity of the entire structure rests on that cornerstone. The integrity of your entire life, everything that you build upon rests on, the, on that original cornerstone. Everything in your life is resting on that stone. Almost like a Jenga tower, as soon as you pull out, you know what I mean, at the bottom, as soon as you pull too many out, the whole thing comes toppling down. Well, that's the foundation. That's what we consider. What is the foundation of your life? Well, the rest of your life, everything that you build on top of is only as good as the strength of that foundation stone. Do you understand what it's saying? And you can understand in Isaiah 28, the context that it's talking about when Peter is saying, or when God is speaking to the, his people in Isaiah 28, he's saying, well, the problem isn't actually the threats that come against you. That's just normal life. The problem is your foundation. The problem isn't the threat. It's your foundation. And so as we sit here kind of considering what is Peter, what is God telling us? You know, there's always going to be threats in life. Like, that's just part of life. There's always going to be temptations. None of you are thinking, Aaron, you're crazy. You all know there are threats in this life. There's always going to be suffering. There's always going to be struggle. You know, that's not the problem. What's the greater problem or greater question? It's what is my foundation? That's the problem. What is your cornerstone? Is it my family? Is it my job? Is it my, my spouse? My bank account? What is that foundation that the rest of your life, that the integrity of the rest of your life is weighed on? This is really important. When something else becomes that stone and not Jesus, when something else, hear me out here, when something else becomes this cornerstone, the foundation of your life, you know, that you might be thinking, I only, if I only had this, then I could do everything that I ever wanted to do in life. You ever think about that? Like if I only had this much money, then I could do, I can build my life upon that. Or if I only had this degree, then I can build the rest of my life upon that. If I only had this person to partner with in my life who was my spouse, then I could build the rest of my life and everything I would have, it would have surety, it would have strength. This is really important. When something else becomes that stone, you actually put that thing in an impossible situation because the entire weight of your life is on that stone. It's the spouse who enters marriage thinking this spouse that I'm about to marry is the cornerstone. And once I'm with them, then everything else is going to fill in. It's the spouse who enters marriage with such high expectations that they put their now new spouse in an impossible situation that no one can possibly live up to. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
It's the parent who puts their kids in that cornerstone. Who now, you know this, you've seen this, maybe your own parents did this, who now live vicariously through their kids. And if their kid fails, then the rest of my life fails. So failure is not an option. I can't allow my kids to fail. Because if they fail, what does that say about me? The integrity of my entire life is in question if that cornerstone cracks. It's the person who makes their career the cornerstone. That it becomes so, so much their identity that without it, who even am I? See, we put that in an impossible situation that no one can hold the weight to. No one can. And we can't accept failure, right? Any cracks that show in that cornerstone now have the weight of my life on it, and I can't accept failure. But Jesus, who is the true rock, who's the only one who, is, who we are told to put as our cornerstone where the weight of our life is upon. The only one we're encouraged to rest our lives upon in Psalm 62, I think Peter read this, says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. That when Jesus is your foundation, you can truly give yourself to those other things in life, not as, not as the weight of your entire life is upon, but as gifts given to you by God. You can actually show grace. You can hold on to them loosely. You can accept failure from your children and from your spouse and also offer forgiveness. Because they're not actually where your life is on. It's on Jesus. So where, what is your foundation in this life? You might think it's actually flattering to say to your spouse, you are the thing that my entire life weighs upon. It's actually not. You're actually putting them in an impossible situation that they, will, they can never succeed. It says in the passage, whoever believes in him, this rock, this living stone, will never be put to shame. There's something in here that I have to focus on because it's not completely obvious as you read through it. But in verse 4, it says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. The other way that could be translated is also honorable. He was honored by God. This, this man, Jesus, who came to the earth, chosen by God, but also bestowed honor upon him. Then it also says, later on again, he says, this cornerstone is chosen and honorable. And then it says, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. And then it says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There's a whole concept of shame and honor going on in this passage that's not completely uh, obvious when you look in it. Honor really just means something that's highly regarded. Commentator Karen Job says this about honor. It's concerned with the positive social standing, reputation, and status rating of individuals and groups in the opinion of others and God. You see what she says? It's the reputation, social standing, and status rating. That's what honor is. In the opinion of others and in the opinion of God. See, honor and shame are, it's almost like a point system. 
If you've ever studied anything about honor and shame, or maybe even your family talked about honor and shame a lot, like you're bringing honor on the family, or you're bringing shame upon the family, it's like a point system. Like with honor on one side and shame on the other, where if any of you play video games, which I, I don't play, I was, I was that kid, okay, my parents didn't actually allow video games in our house. Yeah. That was not to be like a, like a heavy moment. Ooh. Like, you're like, what? That would be unheard of nowadays. My parents didn't allow, so we had to go to my, my we had to go to a friend's house just to play NHL 98 on PlayStation, okay? Which was the greatest game ever created. Maybe N64's Mario Kart and GoldenEye. I, I don't know what I would pick. Probably GoldenEye, actually, for N64. But honor and shame is like a point system. Based on reputation, prestige, and status, you know what I'm talking about when a video game where you have XP or health points, it's like you level up or level down depending on how good you are and the reputation that you have? That's almost like shame and honor. It's like what level are you, how many points, or what are you rated in the opinion of other people or in the opinion of God? Another way, another way you could put it is how much value does your life hold? Like when someone looks at you, and they see your job, they see your family, they see the church that you attend, they see your reputation, they see the things that you do, what value would they bestow upon you? What level? Level 42? I'm just making things up right now. How much value does another person see in you? How will others perceive me? Maybe you didn't grow up with, you know, this concept of honor and shame, like you're bringing shame or honor upon my family, but we do, we do tend to ask questions of when it comes to a career. I know I struggle with that, struggled with that, going through and choosing a career. Like how much, not about like what will be fulfilling for me, what will be good for other people, it's how will others view me doing this? You understand? Like how much honor will they give me if I'm this? Or like when we, when we uh, fellowship together, it's like, hey, my name's Aaron. Then they ask, what do you do? It's almost like, yeah, how much honor, what level are they giving me for what I actually do in this life? How will others perceive me and what value will they view in me? Some of you may, be, may struggle with that where you don't have the career that you thought you did. Right? Like you've tried to build your life and it didn't happen. Nikki will tell tell anyone now she's starting her career now but I put her it's my fault that her career was put on hold for a long time <laughs> she chose me instead of going to school in Calgary and, and rushing through and, get, and getting more credentials I've held her back okay in life okay you can blame me I've held her back now she's now the kids are in school and she's really going for it but how how, how much value will people view me when it comes to my job or my family the church that I attend. The reality of these Christians, as Peter writes this, the reason he's talking about shame and honor is because they believe these Christians, as they turned to Jesus, as they converted to Christianity, it brought shame on their family. That's what they were accused of. You know that still happens today, right? Maybe that happened to you where you converted to Christianity and you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I attend Restoration Church, and all your friends are like, what? Are you an idiot? You know what I mean? Are you, you've joined a cult. 
and your value system goes down. They view you with not the same value anymore. Bring shame upon your friends and your family. Well, that was happening. It brought shame upon the whole family, and so they were discouraged to convert to Christianity because it was a shameful thing to do. Less valuable life. One commentator, John Elliott, who's a historian, said this. This was their reality. It was, those Christians were facing a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as social and moral deviants endangering the common good. This procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community to conform to conventional values and standards of conduct. In a lot of ways, that hasn't really changed. Uh, maybe the greatest persecution that we will go through, at least so far in life, is the shame that you experience by being a Christian here in the West. If you haven't experienced that, you likely will at some point. Maybe there are values that you hold which others would find shameful. Those people and, and their conversion was bringing shame upon them and their families. Peter is encouraging us to consider not how much value that others look at me with, but how, what does God say? What does God say? As Jesus was honored, it says that same honor will now be bestowed upon those who believe in him. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. It's not what others say about you, but about what God says about you. What is the foundation? What is the value of my life? And that affects everything else that we build in this life. If we are so concerned with how others view us and the value that they bestow upon us, man, how can our foundation be Jesus? Now, there's a lot else in this passage that I'm just going to fly through. Okay, so you just kind of understand what we're actually called to build and what we're, what we're called to do, who we are and what we do. Because Jesus is our cornerstone, your life and also this church. What is Restoration Church if Jesus in our, is our cornerstone? Really quickly, and I'm just going to fly through this, and I'm not going to do this justice at all. If you have questions, please come talk to me afterwards. But it says this, you yourselves, like living stones in verse 5, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Man, there's a lot of things in there that I can't rightly explain. But it does encourage us as this living stone, chosen and precious, who is Jesus, our cornerstone. It says, not only him, but you yourselves are also living stones. Remember how I said that cornerstone was the first stone that was laid that would determine the rest of the building? Well, actually, it says the church, this cornerstone is the first stone that was laid, and then all of those other Christians whose lives are now built upon that cornerstone, built up as a temple. It says a spiritual building. That's referring to the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. It's actually crazy that he calls us, we are the same living stones as Jesus. What I think that means is we're, we're basically copied, copies or the image of Jesus here in this world. We therefore believe in him and live like him. That's the definition of a Christian. 
If someone asks, what is a Christian? It's those who believe in Jesus and those who seek to live like him. Not only that, but all of these other living stones are sitting beside you in chairs, are being built up like the temple of God. So not only, you, it's not just Cherish who's a living stone, but Matthew's a living stone, Aaron's a living stone, Landon's a living stone. We're all built up together as the temple. So not only are you, you a living stone in your relationship with Jesus, but you can't get around it that we do this together. We're all living stones being built up together. Which if I could summarize it all, we have a mutual pursuit. We are together in this same pursuit. And that's what I said in communion, we as a church may be radically different people, but what, is, what the beauty of that is, we all have the same ultimate pursuit in life, which is to believe in Jesus and live like him, which is built up into this spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Man, I could dig into that, but I'm not going to. Basically, it's just the church is the temple. We are the dwelling place of God who now, as a holy priesthood, make worship acceptable to God. Now, Peter is getting to something here. Verse 9 and 10, he throws out a whole bunch of titles in verse 9. You are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. You know, all those titles and descriptions were actually for who? Now, people reading this, some of them might have been Jewish. They're like, wait, wait a minute, the church is these things? Because all of these titles and descriptions were actually for who? Israel, the people of God. For thousands of years, like in Isaiah, God calls Israel all of these titles and descriptions. They were supposed to be for that. When he says a chosen race, he's not talking about that there's one race that's superior. It's just by the grace of God, God chooses one people and really the foolish things of this world to actually despise the wise things of this world. So he says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people that are set apart for God's use so that the nations can actually look inside and see a people that are following God. The church, I have to end this. The church is simply Israel, as, as Israel was always intended to be. That's it. The church is the people of God, as Israel was always intended to be. For thousands of years, God called them and described them. You're my chosen race, you're a royal. But they didn't live like that. But now the church is being built up as this holy biological temple where God dwells and where we, where we now worship in an acceptable way before God a people that is given grace, that responds in worship, that we tell the excellencies of God to the world. I mean, that's what, that's what we're building, guys. We're people that have been given grace. We respond in worship so that the world can see. That's it. Like, that's what a church does. That's what we're, we're being built up as. A people who've been given grace who respond in worship and so that the world can see. I gotta end. There's too much. There's too much here. Cutting out like half of it. We're left with a decision that you can't avoid. It says Jesus is the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
Basically, it's saying this is like a stone, a giant stone that's in the middle of the path. If you've ever walked with our family at Alps Woods, you know there are stones that come up in the path. And I'm telling you, I've tripped and fallen on probably every stone in, that, in those woods. They come out of nowhere sometimes. Just be talking to people, and then all of a sudden you're face first into the dirt because you tripped on a stone. That's the picture we're left with. There's no getting around it. There's no way you can avoid it. Jesus is this stone that's in the way of this path that you are on, and you're left with the decision to either trust in this living stone or stumble over it. Almost like a banana peel in Mario Kart you can't avoid, that you can't avoid. I do want to... It says, for those who disobey the word as they were destined to do. Really quickly, I just want to make sure... I don't believe that's actually talking about that God has destined people to refuse him. I don't believe the destined is actually the decision, but the consequences of that decision. Almost like if you choose to skip work, that's your choice. You're free to do that, but you know the consequences of what's going to happen. That stone, basically, guys, is an opportunity for trust or rejection of Jesus. That's ultimately the question we're left with from this passage. As you consider what kind of life am I building, is that stone going to be the foundation of your life? Or is it going to be something I stumble over? God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you how it cuts deep into our heart. Thank you that it shows us the beauty and grace of Jesus. Lord, I pray that if there's someone sitting here that has not decided to follow you, that has not decided to make, make you that foundation, Lord, I pray that they would stop stumbling. I pray that they would trust in you with their life. Yeah, God, we pray for all these things here.